Hello, dear listeners. I just want to let you all know that this episode is part two of an ongoing series. If you're the sort of person who likes things to actually make sense, and you haven't yet heard episode one, I suggest you go back and do so. Also, it should be noted that when this series was first recorded in 2022 CE, I heavily edited it to avoid drawing the attention of the congregation's pack of rabid lawyers. However, as the congregation of the Oversoul does not appear to exist anymore, and as I live in a part of the world that views fringe religious groups as an active security threat, I feel safe in releasing this episode in its uncut form. Should any still-living members of the congregation wish to come to SEWR headquarters in the Thonic Riviera to air their grievances, I request that you direct all complaints to my colleague, Krista Golden. You will recognize her by her short stature, blonde hair, and attempts to viciously bludgeon you with a crowbar if you startle her. On last week's episode of Liminal Criminals, Jason Mackerel de Groot, the child of two serial cultists, started school at San Vertadero High in Inferno Real, Arizona, after spending the first 14 years of his life being educated in academics, esoteric belief systems, and emotional manipulation by the fringe religious groups of the American West. Using his knowledge of group dynamics and the human psyche, de Groot amassed a following from the bottom rungs of San Vertadero's social ladder. By the time he graduated, he had turned this group of disparate losers into his personal army and the instrument of his vengeance. After graduation, de Groot absconded with his followers and his hapless father's credit card as they made their way to the quasi-remote mountain town of Fugged Point, California. There, De Groot was struck with the inspiration for the two central tenets of his religion, namely that A, we are all one, and B, identity theft is actually a good thing. With his cult, the Congregation of the Oversoul, now in full swing, De Groot and his trusted lieutenant, Holly Beach, stole the only credit card in Fugged Point and set out for San Francisco ready to make a name for themselves and their new religion. What they found there, however, would alter the course of their cult forever. I'm Sam Putnam, and you're listening to Liminal Criminals. As de Groot walked with Beach along the side of the country road, trying to hitch a ride back to the Greyhound station in the nearby town of Fog Mountain, they began to hatch a plan. While Bethany Miller, the owner of their most recently stolen identity, would eventually notice that her credit card had been stolen, it would likely take a few days for her to do so. Most businesses in town formerly had been run by the Society of People, who believed that credit cards were baubles of modern greed that would lead one to moral dissolution, 
sexual depravity, and worst of all, the consumption of carbonated beverages. Even after the society disbanded following a scandal involving three sex workers and five bottles of off-brand cola, the town was slow to abandon its religious ideals. The nearest establishment that took credit cards was a gas station five miles outside of town. Bethany Miller, in the meantime, had recently broken her leg, and was unlikely to stray too far outside of Fugged Point. According to DeGroote's rough estimate, that would give them about three days where they could, as he put it, become financially one with the universe through the unknowing generosity of Bethany Miller. They could then use said oneness to print off some pamphlets, spread the good word, and, hopefully, reconnect with enough members of DeGroote's former religions to establish a social foothold in town. After flagging down a passing van, DeGroote finished his explanation, and the two began the first leg of their journey west. As Beach rode with DeGroote in the van, trying to avoid looking too closely at the visibly shaking driver and his collection of vintage meat hooks piled in the back of the vehicle, some doubts began to stir in her mind. I think that, even then, I wasn't so sure of what we were doing, said Beach in a 2016 interview with crime journalist Amanda Lipinski. I mean, we hadn't even spent a couple of weeks in that trailer, and now we were about to take a six-hour trip to San Francisco with a stolen credit card and the hope that we could find some of Jason's old buddies from, like, years ago. But then I took a look at Jason as he was talking to the guy driving us, and he seemed so sure of himself. By the time that we got to Fog Mountain and the guy let us off, I had forgotten all of my worries that our enlightened leader may have been an idiot. This encounter was doubly impressive considering that the man that DeGroote had conversed with was Michael Hooker, better known as the Meat Hook Killer. DeGroote's gift of gab was enough to get them through the rest of their journey. It was enough to smooth-talk the clerk at the ticket counter in the Greyhound station into ignoring that the name on the card that Jason had given her belonged to somebody named Bethany. Most impressive of all, it enabled him to maintain a conversation with other people on the bus for the entire ride to San Francisco without seeming like an over-talkative jackass. As the two stepped off of the bus at their destination, they felt the cool, fishy evening breeze rustle their hair and were thus invigorated. They strode into the city, ready to execute DeGroote's vision. There was just one problem with Jason DeGroote's plan. It was thought of by an 18-year-old boy, and was therefore incredibly stupid. His idea to reconnect with his former cultists hinged upon the idea that they would want anything to do with him. This was not the case. The bulk of DeGroote's would-be social network had either gotten recruited by other cults, or had moved out of Northern California entirely. The handful of former cultists that DeGroote could actually make contact with responded to his presence with disdain. As it turned out, DeGroote's ability to ascend the clerical ladder while still a child did little to endear him to his fellow cultists. Apple Leary, one of the people that Jason attempted to contact, later told reporter Lara Yen, I was 22 when I joined up with the Cosmic Fish Fellowship and I never got any higher than being an acolyte. That little prick got into the Order of Leviathan while he was barely out of diapers. I had half a mind to throw him into the bay right there and then. That'd show the little f***er. Undeterred, Jason decided that he would continue on his holy mission without the aid of his former peers. Retiring to a nearby copy shop, 
the two drafted up a pamphlet that vaguely detailed the congregation's beliefs in an evocative but non-legally actionable way. After paying for several dozen copies with Bethany Miller's credit card, they walked to a street corner in the neighborhood of Haight-Ashbury and began to proselytize. Sadly, not even DeGroote's way with people could translate into a successful run as a street preacher. In two hours of his fervent oration about the nature of God and the ways of the universe, he and Beach managed only to hand off a small fraction of his pamphlets, which were primarily used as receptacles for gum, as tissues, or, in a few particularly sad instances, as toilet paper. Just as DeGroote and Beach were about to give up, however, a gangly, bespectacled man in a button-down flannel came up to them and asked for a pamphlet. This man, as luck would have it, was Guy Fredericks. If that name sounds familiar to you, that may be because Guy Fredericks was a founder of Phaethon Incorporated. Founded in 1980, Phaethon Incorporated is now better known as Faith, a conglomerate of tech and social media companies. Faith's portfolio includes Allroads, a content aggregation network, Hearth, an online real estate company, and, most infamously, Happy Ninja, a mobile game developer that has been directly linked to three deaths and five dismemberments back in 2008. Part techno-libertarian, part wannabe mystic, and part credulous rube, Fredericks had built his company alongside his business partner, Michael Herman. Earlier in 1989, however, Herman had convinced Fredericks into an early retirement, along with a generous severance package and stringent non-competition agreement, leaving Fredericks wealthy but restless. To cope, he had taken to walking through San Francisco and people-watching. It was on one of said walks that he stumbled upon DeGroote and Beach. A lot of the stuff that the two were talking about was the same stuff that I had already heard a million times over from other preachers said Fredericks in his interview with Laura Yen. You know, we are all one, all religions are true, you can reach enlightenment by giving us all of your money, all that crap. But from the way that the two were preaching, I could tell they were holding something back. Something that they didn't want to proclaim to a bunch of strangers on the sidewalk. And, well, I just got a little curious. Fredericks struck up a conversation with the Groot and Beach, trying to probe the two for information. De Groot ever the opportunist, invited Fredericks to lunch so that he could give him the full brunt of his cult's sales pitch. Fredericks, suspecting nothing, obliged. I just kept trying to get Jason to fess up about what the congregation actually believed, said Fredericks, but he just kept getting vaguer and vaguer about it. By the time that he paid for our food, uh, he was talking about how, since we were all technically manifestations of the same god, a lot of conventional morals weren't actually true. I was about to ask him what he meant by that when the waitress came back and, uh, well, what happened then kind of answered it for me. Shelley Fields, a server at the Hilltop Diner, came back to the table and informed DeGroot that the card that he had given her had been reported stolen and that she had just phoned the police. Jason DeGroot and Holly Beach, realizing that their ritual of criminality had just come to an end, immediately bolted out of the restaurant. Fredericks, Half outraged and half enthralled, followed after, shouting at them to come back. After chasing DeGroote and Beach for several blocks, Fredericks, his determination and long legs compensating for his lifetime dedicated to avoiding cardio, managed to catch up with the two as they caught their breath. 
In between desperate gasps for air, Fredericks explained to the two young cultists that he was still interested in their religion and in the congregation's seeming vision of a utopia where identity theft was the norm. What was more, he continued, he had something that the two didn't have, a presence in the San Francisco Bay Area, and access to legally acquired funds. I could tell from the look on his face that Jason didn't want to go along with it at first, said Beach. I'm sure he just wanted to, like, rob Guy and keep running, but we were out of breath. I could hear sirens in the distance, and if this excursion turned out to be a total loss, I was going to make sure that Jason would have needed to think about his religion's afterlife really damn quickly. So I managed to cut him off before he could speak and welcomed Guy into the flock. Before Jason could so much as react... Beach reached out and shook Fredericks' hand. De Groot, apparently not wanting to lose face, did the same. Evidently hearing the sirens himself, Fredericks ushered the two down a side street and led them back to his house, doing his best to keep his new religious gurus hidden from the police. When they finally reached his home, they piled into his four-door sedan and peeled out back towards Fugged Point. Upon coming back to the congregation's headquarters, De Groot, intensely aware of his status as a fugitive and decidedly unhappy about it, was faced with a choice. On the one hand, he could lie low for a bit and let his underlings handle the public-facing end of his cult. From what his followers could tell him, Fugged Point's police department consisted of Sheriff Price, a former member of the Society of People known for his scattered-brained nature and refusal to get cataract surgery, and Wolfie, a well-meaning German shepherd who had crossed the line from elderly to decrepit about five years ago. If de Groot were to stay in town and not make waves, he could probably lie his way out of trouble. At worst, he could let one of his followers take the fall for his crimes. On the other hand, he could accompany Fredericks back into the city and help oversee the further development of his new religion, but with a far higher chance of being arrested. In a rare show of discretion and planning ability, De Groot chose the former. He and Beach would stay behind in Fugged Point, while Fredericks and a few of the more trusted members of the congregation would go back to San Francisco to work on De Groot's brainchild. Before Fredericks's return to the city by the bay, he and Beach spent the next few days hatching a plan, while De Groot, unused to being out of the driver's seat of his own cult, offered occasional sulky proposals. Ultimately, the three settled on a course of action. Fredericks and crew would rent a couple of storefronts around the city, advertising themselves as holistic wellness centers, selling the standard array of healing crystals, culturally appropriated spiritual symbols, and mass-produced paintings of something called the Cosmic Lingam, an unfortunate geometric design whose popularity in the early 90s put several tattoo removal specialists' children through college a few years later. As the congregation's wellness centers found their feet, they would start advertising a mountain wellness retreat in Fugged Point. As the unfortunate yuppies poured into Fugged Point, De Groot would be able to work his magic, placing the seeds of indoctrination into their minds, watering them with love-bombing, and nurturing them with the industrial-grade fertilizers of emotional manipulation, mental abuse, and physical labor. With this income, and the free work that came with it, the congregation would be able to build their religion into something other than a bunch of teenagers living in a derelict airstream. 
How did this plan go? How did Guy Fredericks lead the Congregation of the Oversoul's first major religious venture? How did Beach and De Groot fare now that De Groot was no longer at the reins of his miniature empire? We'll find out on the next episode, but I'll give you a hint. It didn't go well. This has been Liminal Criminals. I'm Sam Putnam. I'll see you next time. And remember, they started this so very long ago. They started this yesterday. They started this tomorrow. Liminal Criminals was originally a true crime podcast by Liminal Studios. It was originally researched, written, and created by Sam Putnam. It is edited for broadcast and distribution with the generous support of the Thonic Riviera Government and Deep Self-Preservation League. Up next, I'll be playing some fragments of Vaporwave Remix that I never finished, after which I'll be recapping this week's news with the Sunday edition of Studio Community Worldwide Radio. Also, Krista, if you're listening... Actually, yeah, actually, wait, I think you're still here. Uh, give me a second, I'll just ask you in person. Hey, Krista. Liminal Criminals is a fictional podcast by SCWR Productions. It is written and edited by Sam Putnam. It is co-written by Krista Golden, who also featured in this week's intro. Our theme song is Thonic Riviera by Cornu Amonis. Follow us on Twitter at LiminalCast, or like us on Facebook. Subscribe to us, rate us, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Tell a friend about us. Go to that store on the corner and tell the cashier to initiate Phase B. They'll know what you're talking about. All links are in the show notes. <laughs>